previously on American Thought Leaders. Warfare is daily, it never ends. There's no beginning and end like there is here in, in the West. In part one of my interview with retired Brigadier General Robert Spaulding, we discussed the Chinese regime's strategy of unrestricted warfare, which is detailed in his latest book, War Without Rules, China's Playbook for Global Domination. Now in part two. The Chinese Communist Party doesn't do things willy-nilly. It's very deliberate. Behind China's draconian lockdowns, what's really going on? Is it potentially related to Xi Jinping's plans for Taiwan? They're going to go element by element through their economy and see which of those is still open to attack from the West, to seal those up prior to invading Taiwan. In part two, General Robert Spaulding breaks down how the U.S. can effectively counter the Chinese communist threat to the free world. When we brought China into this international order, we began to suppress the principles and values that made us free here in America. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kellek. So what is going on with these, you know, extreme lockdowns? I don't even know. It's like a, a 300, at this moment, 300 million people or something like that. We've got Shanghai, I think Shenzhen's still locked down. Multiple, mul multiple cities across China. Those are the kind of prominent ones. I mean, really, really some extreme stuff. And it's, let's put it this way, the information doesn't appear to be suppressed at all. So, and we know that China, uh, the Chinese Communist Party is constantly uh, waging this asymmetric, unrestricted warfare. So, you know, presumably they want everybody to know that there's these really crazy lockdowns. There's, you know, actually to the point that there's protests happening. And it makes a lot of people out here be scratching their heads like, what's really happened? What is this really about? Is it about an actual zero COVID policy, which I think, you know, the CCP is probably smart enough to understand just doesn't work um, or not. I don't know. Or are they so committed to that? Or is there something else going on entirely? What do you think? Well, first of all, um, the good Harvard study that talks about how um, China controls social media. And really, it's not about preventing protests. It's about preventing viral protests. And so um, there is an ability to let off steam within the system, but the system if it, if it essentially starts to, um, if the din gets too high, then they'll shut it down. And so it's a way for them to modulate um, anxiety and anger within the system. So they allow that, that, that to happen. It's quite effective. And, and like I said, Harvard uh, did a study and, and documented that quite well. So I don't think we know, you know, it's kind of like a, a pressure cooker, you know. I think the Chinese have a much better idea of how much pressure the system actually has and how close it is to actually boiling over because they control the social media system. So that's number one. So I would not think that they would, you know, that they would let that get too close to a red line, number one. So what do they, what do they seek to accomplish um, by locking people down? Well, it could be to just see how far they can take it. How much can they control the population? Or who are the ones that are the problems? You know, and maybe those are the people that, you know, that are next on the list for targeting. Again, they have this very system engineering approach to society with the social credit score. So you know, it could be that they're trying to find the outliers that create the problem, you know, that, that are the insurgents within that they have to um, call out. 
It can be that um, you know they they are dealing with the fact that they have a slowing economy. Um, you have inflation that's kind of global now, and you have very expensive resources, one of which is energy. Let's tamp down our, um, our, our need for that energy. That could be you know, one of the ways they do it, so your, your prices drop for those things. Um, they also can see that, inter- that inflation is spiking in other countries. So what else happens when you close down you know, the, the supply chain of the world? You get a, you get a slowing of diminishing supply, uh, in those countries, so now infl- inflation spikes over there. We don't have a we don't have a a way to control the population automatically. It, you know, people get angry about um, uh, inflation. Now we do it through the polls, but it also becomes you know inflation is a, is a is a destructive thing, not just to your society but also to your currency. So maybe that. Uh, has a part to play. Maybe they don't want their population to catch on to the fact that you know they're su- the Chinese Communist Party is supporting Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And actually, you know, Putin came and got Xi's blessing and went back with Xi's blessing. And and you know, I have some ideas on why that that was. Maybe they're testing you know how they might approach a Taiwan invasion if the Chinese people you know if it, if it starts to go wrong or if it becomes too bloody. You know, and the, the population needs to be suppressed. So there's a lot of things that can be going on, and I think again, to um, to our knowledge of what happens in the Chinese Communist Party, I don't think it's for because they actually believe that it will um, prevent the spread of COVID. That's not it. Uh, I think the coronavirus, you know, really is this uh, methodology for control, and they have the reasons that they're doing it. I don't know what they are. Well, and I'll, let me pick up on what you mentioned earlier. You have a few theories about why Vladimir Putin went to China. Which scenario? I mean, Vladimir Putin's been, I think I was talking with Kyle Bass the other day over the last 10 years, something like 40 times, 40 visits, uh, Xi, Putin sort of thing. What in, what, which trip are you talking about specifically here and what, what happened? Well, specifically, he went, yeah. he, he went and uh, they had this 5,000 word um, statement you know oh, the, the olympics trip right oh, the olympics course, trip course, right yeah, and, yeah. and 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 so what i believe you know the reason um what she gets out of putin's invasion of ukraine is he gets to sit back and watch how the west approaches that in terms of what are they going to do to russia as a result of that because i think you know it gives them a way to anticipate how, what they may face when they go uh into taiwan and so um I think it also gives them an ability to stress test their own system. Again, non-convertible currency, strict capital controls. Not Russia. Russian ruble, you know, basically has been destroyed by um, by the uh, sanctions that come on on the tail end of the invasion. The Chinese, you can't do that. But there are the ways and other uh, methodologies that um, could potentially create a problem for China. So I guarantee you that Liu He, uh, Xi Jinping's economic advisor, is watching all of those things. And they're watching all the metrics and they're, they're trying to anticipate how the West might try to get at them. And what they're going to do is, is they're going to go um, element by element through their economy and see which of those is still um, open to attack from the West, right? And if they have any that are vulnerable, they'll seek to um, to seal those up prior to invading Taiwan. Prior to World War I, 
there's a, a small um, uh, memoir written by Ambassador Morgenthau. He was the U.S. ambassador to Turkey. And he got to be really good friends with the German ambassador. And um, in addition to uh, Morgenthau basically fighting the Turks over the uh, Armenian genocide, you know, he got to learn through the German ambassador, you know, what was the lead up to war. And the German ambassador told him, you know, they met, he was called back to Germany, they met with all the bankers and, and the Kaiser, and the Kaiser looked around the table and said, is everybody ready for war? And the banker said, uh, not quite, we need to liquidate our holdings in the West prior to, um, prior to kicking off the war. And so they did, they liquidated their holdings. Two weeks later, the war started. I would anticipate that the Chinese Communist Party now will go through the steps needed to ensure that you know, they're going to liquidate their holdings, they're going to do things that actually insulate themselves from economic attack and, and, and thus enable themselves to invade Taiwan without, without suffering too many consequences. It may be, too, that they anticipate that they're going to have to do, um, impose martial law in, in, uh, in China. What better way to impose martial law than by convincing the population that you're trying to protect them from this virus? So there's a lot of things that go into thinking about how the Chinese Communist Party thinks about um, lockdowns because they're, they're an incredible tool for control. The Chinese Communist Party doesn't do things willy-nilly. It's very deliberate. And so what unrestricted warfare allows you to do is kind of anticipate what those reasons are and or what they might be. Another thing you mentioned, which I thought was very interesting, was you know a place where the Chinese regime is exposed uh, if it chooses, say, to go after Taiwan and, and so forth, is its holdings essentially outside of but some aspects of the Belt and Road Initiative, um, basically the ways that it's uh, invested in the West. This is what presumably analysts can be looking for now, right, is attempts to kind of extract that based on what you're saying. So look at um, what Saudi Arabia did to the royal family um, uh, when the prince took over basically locked him in the hotel and said, sign over your assets. When, when we look at China, you know, we try, again, we do a lot of pattern matching as Americans, and we pattern match systems. And um, we say, you know, there's the individual and then there's the state. And in the case of China, there's the individual, then there's a state, then there's a party. And typically when it comes to assets, we separate the assets of the individual from the state or the party. Now, what's happened in Russia is we've gone after the oligarchs, right? So we've, we've, we've kind of, we've made that leap. Okay, the oligarchs, you know, it's kind of like going back to Kosovo. Who are the elites supporting Milosevic? Who are the elites supporting Putin? Let's go over the, after their assets. Let's even go after the assets of Putin's family himself. We, you know, so when you think about what, are, what leverage do we have over the Chinese Communist Party? We have the fact that the party, the state, and, and, and the, um, uh, the families of the party members are, you know, different. The state is not sovereign. The party is sovereign. So if you have a problem with the, with the state, you don't go to the state. You go to the party. And if you have a problem with the party, you go to the family of the party members. And so... That's where the leverage is. It's in the assets held by the families of the party members that are you know, almost um, 
you know, especially at the top, almost all very wealthy. And they have assets outside the country, right? Because they've moved those assets outside the country because they know within China, you could lose everything in a heartbeat. But outside, you know, you're going to have to you're going to have to fight that. So if you think about what kind of leverage can you have over the um, over the party, it is over the assets of the family members of the party. Well, and just a kind of a curiosity, I have to mention this. Technically, I think it's illegal and deeply illegal to be moving those assets outside of the country, isn't it? Well, right. yeah, yeah, but then but then you're talking about a system that has rule of law. When you have rule by law, everybody's doing something illegal, but it only matters, you know, it's just like animal farm. You know, some, some animals are equal. Some animals are, are more equal than others. So, you know, yes, it's illegal. Uh, so technically, you could be doing the Chinese people a favor by encumbering the assets of these um, of these uh, Communist Party uh, family members, but ultimately, I think we're going to have to make that leap if we want to have any hope of, of putting pressure on the Chinese Communist Party. Now, here's the thing: I don't know that she will, will even blink an eye. I don't think he works that way. I think he's very much um, devoted to the party, and he's a, he's a He's a communist through and through, and um, I think he's already made peace with the fact that you know that could be something that comes. And what's more important to him is taking back Taiwan. He said he's not going to leave it to the next generation. So you're not—I don't think you're going to deter him at all. Um, I think before she, you probably could have had—you could have used that as as maybe a tool. I think in this time, um, I honestly don't believe that we're, there's anything we can do to stop. Uh, the Chinese Communist Party from invading Taiwan. I think we have to think more in terms of what can we preserve, what can we save in terms of lives, right? That's the thing that I think that, you know, if we're really moral, what we can really, um, what's achievable? And what's achievable is something that says, hey, we're going to do our best to ensure the safety uh, of, the, of the people of Taiwan. We're not going to be able to stop, uh, you know, China's invasion. That's beyond our ability to control at this point because we've allowed them to build up too much power, uh, military power, on their side of the strait. So I, I don't know if that's a commonly held view, what you just expressed. Um, I don't think that we Americans are very good at saying, you know, we're not the best. It won't even come out of our mouth. You know, one of the words that we use so often is this idea of near peer. You know that China's a near peer. You know we could never say China's a peer, right? Because then that would, is particularly militarily. Um, and then to go beyond that and say no, China is superior. That would be against everything that we are as Americans. We just, it's hard for us to 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 basically allow that to come out of our mouth. It's just something that's so anathema to who we are as a people. And so we say China's a near peer, despite the fact that war game after war game after war game after war game, we lose in a war with China over Taiwan. And not only do we lose, we lose fast. We lose really fast. And so we have no chance, um, short of short of nuclear war. Uh, in, in winning a war over Taiwan. And nobody wants to contemplate nuclear war because you're, you're talking about the end of the potential end of civilization. So if it's end of civilization or China gets Taiwan, what's your choice if you're the president of the United States? Okay, so if that's the case, what do we do? 
What's our responsibility? What was our responsibility to the people of Berlin? What was our responsibility to the people of Eastern Europe that fell under the Iron Curtain? It was to do the best we can to provide for them and to struggle to essentially, in the end, defeat communism, defeat tyranny. But that's, you're talking about a long-term struggle where we have to economically and politically and socially and academically decouple and we have to allow the, the principles and values of free society enable us to surpass the economic uh, power of China and eventually allow their citizens to recognize that they, they, they live in a tyranny and it's in, not in their best interest. That's a long struggle. But, but you know, to get into a war over Taiwan and to potentially you know, have it escalate to an a, a existential threat to humanity, I just don't see any leader committing to that. You know, it's very interesting how many parallels there are in what you described right now to what's happening in you know, Russia and Ukraine right now. That's, that, that's, what's, that's what's striking me, at least you know, in a, in a, with, with broad strokes, obviously. You know, you sort of started diving into here what to do here now in this sort of situation. The Chinese Communist Party has been waging unrestricted warfare on America, principally, of course, on the West, using all these different means at its disposal, Belt and Road Initiative, you know, all sorts of economic warfare, subversion of these international multilateral organizations, many things. Um, you're making the case that when it comes to Taiwan, at least, China, the Chinese Communist Party is better positioned militarily to take it. So what to do, and I don't mean about Taiwan, I just mean in general, you, you, you painted a whole bigger picture here, right? And right. you mentioned decoupling as one of the one of the kind of key tools of strategy of America's own un unrestricted warfare, I suppose. Or is that, are you suggesting that America needs to wage unrestricted warfare in response? Well, you know, that's, that goes back to the founding of America. What is America? It's a mind virus. It's this idea that, that you're supposed to, you know, by your nature, supposed to be free as a human. And that's a terribly, terribly powerful idea. But it's not powerful in the sense that you're not actually free. And so when we brought China into this international order, we began to suppress the principles and values of, that made us free here in America. And so in decoupling, we began to re, get reacquainted with our own principles and values, what they mean. And therein lies the allure of America. So we don't have to wage unrestricted war on China. What we have to do is reach our true potential because when Americans reach their true potential and they're totally free and they, um, and they have the blessings of liberty, then they are, you know, their enthusiasm and boundless energy is not, is, cannot be subdued. And that shines like a beacon around the world. And that has been the thing for over 240 years that has made us strong. It's not that we have weapons. It's not that we have a strong military. It's that people look to us and say, God, I wish I was like that, or I wish I could be there. And to the extent that we've allowed China to basically erode you know, through its, its connection to everything, international order, our own domestic institutions, those principles and values around the globe, and we can break free of that. 
you know, then we're going to shine like a beacon again. And when we do, we can work with other nations that have similar aspirations. And to the extent that they also decouple from China, then they can begin to prosper. And as that system begins to, you know, show its true strength, you know, the strength of China has been creating this false allure of their system. This false allure is wrapped in the American flag. It's wrapped in all the blessings of liberty because we've given it all to them. But if we, if we maintain it for ourselves and we work with allies and partners to, to in, enable American citizens to you know, re, get reacquainted with the blessings of liberty, China cannot compete with that. They know it. That's why they're so afraid of the Constitution, because they're afraid of this mind virus that, that can, you know, you know, find itself a home within the mind of, a, of an average Chinese citizen. There are Chinese people that would embrace American freedom if they could. Who are the people that, you know, we thought of that came to the United States that really <laughs> embraced the values? It's the huddled masses. It's the people that are hurting. That's why they come to America. You know, the elites that come to America, they're white collar, they don't embrace the values of America because they don't understand what it's about. It's about dreaming, not just for a better life for you, but for your children. That's the thing that you can break the Chinese Communist Party on, that idea. And they know it. And so uh, we don't have to you know, embrace unrestricted warfare. We don't have to embrace war at all. We need a, a military to defend ourselves. But if we can just separate ourselves from China and really allow the blessings of liberty to allow us to grow our innovation, technology, talent, and capital intrinsically, then the American people are going to be prosperous. They're going to be happy. They're going to be fulfilled. They're going to reach their potential. And the Chinese people will look at that and they will say, you know, not only will they not have those things to, to help kind of paper over the inadequacies of the Chinese system, the Chinese communist system, so their economy will begin to degrade and slow even more than it has. And when that happens, they'll have unemployment, they'll have, uh, they'll have challenges, and they're going to look across the ocean and they're going to say, there's a better way to do this. This was, the, this was what we did during the Cold War. It wasn't about fighting a war um, that was you know, anywhere near unrestricted, unrestricted warfare. It was about allowing the American people to re reach their true potential and letting the people <laughs> that were in the former Soviet states to look across the ocean and say, and, and most of the leaders of those nations when the Cold War ended, you know, they were listening to Voice of America, they were listening to Radio Free Asia, they were listening to Radio Free Europe, and most of them, that was the first place they stopped when they came to Washington, D.C. after the fall of, uh, of the Soviet Union, was to, was to say, thank you, thank you for having, to get, being my voice of hope. And that hope was not just, you know, those radio programs. It was actually in this idea that I could embrace, I could usher in these blessings of liberty to my own nation if, um, if, if I'm strong enough and, and, and have enough resolve. You know, you, you made a lot of uh, recommendations at the end of the book about, you know, how to move. And this is, you know, a, a piece of what you just described. You know, one of the things was sort of, I guess, recreating the U.S. information agency, which was kind of, I guess, subsumed by the State Department at some point. Um, and, and many other, I mean, you, you have some suggestions about how to do AI development in a way that's constructive, which I thought was very interesting. Before I go there, the pandemic has certainly showed us that in the U.S. and in many Western countries, we're 
willing to adopt on one hand and accept, I guess, a direction that's very sim much more similar to what communist China has than what the U.S. traditionally has. And so, you know, I'm actually I'm, I'm moved by what you said moments ago. At the same time, I'm asking myself this question: you know, is it is it that the West is accepting, you know? Through its practice of the last two years or so, those the, those types of approaches more so much more so than the other way around, which is what you're advocating. Well, I think that um, you know when you have a society that's functioning, you know, an American society that's functioning on all cylinders, um, it's it's actually where where people are enabled to reach their potential, where they have where there is economic opportunity. Um, I don't think that we truly understand the implication of destroying an industrial base to kind of the soul, um, the economic soul of the country. And, um, you know, there was this big push, and there still is, to let's just make everybody a coder. We just, everybody, if everybody could just be a software developer, then, um, you know, we're going to be great, and other people can, can make stuff. But there's a segment of our society that, that always wanted to make stuff, and we basically destroyed that. We hollowed it out, and we said, we don't want the dirtiness, we don't want the, the mess, we don't even, we really don't even want those people. Um, you know, we want those people to change and be something, you know, more than what they were. I think that was bad. That was, that was wrong for us. I think as we kind of settled into that funk where we had no industrial base, we had no manufacturing capability, and we had no we had no working class, really, that was really, that could, you know, aspire to better or could create, to even have, you know, long-term employment that they could raise a family and buy a home. You don't have that anymore. You, you rent a home, rent a room in Airbnb if you can or drive for Uber. You don't work in a factory for 20, 30 years and, and raise your kids and allow them to, you know, be something more. When you have that going on at the same time that you have kind of the social activism that we see on university campuses that are, um, that are you know, much less you know, effusive about the blessings of liberty and much more about how do we destroy the system so that we can recreate it in more of a communist uh, manner, then you know, what would be, uh, what I would think would be um, kind of outliers in the society now uh, have a willing populace to bring them along. And so, again, it's not just China that's been able to um, essentially corrupt us through, you know, all the tools of modernity and, and especially using IT. I mean, the two colonels talk about IT as the bonding agent for society and the way that you get control over society. But we've done it to ourselves by hollering out, you know, the meaning of life, you know, for, you know, a big segment of our population. So, you know, I think that if you can restore that, if you can restore the dream of the working class so they can have jobs and they can, they can really um, have hope, really we're talking about hope here, um, it's tied closely to economic prosperity and your own ability to have the, the ability to, you know, essentially uh, provide for yourself and your family. This is, this is very basic. It's, it's something of, uh, of human dignity. If you can have that, then this, this idea that America is a bad place and you know we we break each other on the differences um, rather than embracing uh, the differences. Then I think that you have you know the Chinese Communist Party's ability to kind of throw hand grenades in there and kind of make it worse. 
um, diminishes. So there are, there are economic factors, there are social and there are political factors, and I think they all begin to be solved if we can just get some separation and ensure that you know, we're investing in our own people. People, for the most part, here in the United States, if they have economic opportunity, if they can raise a family, if they can have uh, long-term employment, if they can have hope for the future, they're not going to, whatever somebody, some professor is saying on some campus somewhere about you know, um, the fact that what you say is reality, not what is reality. You know, if you say the sun revolves around the earth, well, then that's your truth, right? That's your reality. That's what we have people saying today. Everybody knows that's crazy. But when you have a society that is not pursuing their own best outcomes, you create this division because people don't have, um, they don't have hope. And that, I think that's where these things have gotten purchased is, is because... Um, of, of what happened at the end of the Cold War and this kind of parasitic relationship with China. Around AI, we have this situation where, for example, Google has been very open to be working doing AI R&D in China, where we know, again, based on the, what the colonels tell us, that everything has to be kind of dual use, you know, mil military as well as public, but they won't or do AI R&D, for example, with the U.S. military. This was kind of a you know, bizarre dichotomy. So that struck me as an you know, incredible application of uh, unrestricted warfare. How did they pull that off? I, 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 it's almost hard to imagine. Um, you make some suggestions, pointed suggestions about how to do AI development in a way that would actually be kind of secure and, and thoughtful. I wonder if you could share that. And the second thing is a bit about your current work, um, which is again, all about, it seems, countering the Chinese Communist Party. Well, so first of all, I think what the two PLA colonels recognized was the power of information technology to change our lives, and to change our lives in ways that would actually promote the interests of the Chinese Communist Party. I can collect data about you because I um, can see the data that's collected by your smartphone, and I have access to that data. Like today, I could go home right after this, I could call somebody up and I said, I could say, I was in this room uh, in Washington, D.C., here's the address, can you draw a circle around that room, and I want you to go and uh, find the devices in that room, and then I want you to watch those devices you know, over the next two weeks, and then I want you to come back and tell me who uh, owns those devices, and, um, and then I want you, after I know that, there's these two people that I want you to pay attention to watch everything that they do. Now, uh, today, with software development kit data that's uh, used for making apps for smartphones, you can buy that data on the open market. Uh, and e it can be what's called GDPR data, right? It it's doesn't reveal your identity, but you can figure it out. Where do you go at night? Where do you keep going every single night? Oh, who lives in that house? Who owns that property? Who drives that car? You can, you can begin to, you know, this is what an Intel analyst can, can tell you. Okay, so now, you know, if I know your device and I can watch everything you do, I can send you ads that are targeted directly to you that I want you to see that can have, you know, malware embedded or it can have, you know, it can just be something I want you to notice. Um, when you're going somewhere, I can send you an ad for something then and, and have you see it. So, 
and I have a way to uh, interact with you, I have a way to track you, I have a way to understand everything that you do because you know, I'm tracking this device now. That is the current reality. That happens today every single day and it happens anywhere around the world. Anybody that's got a smartphone in their possession, that happens. Okay, that's one level of understanding which leads to a level of control. The next level of understanding and control is cameras. You walk out of here, you have no device, but there's cameras in the building, there's cameras outside the building, and those cameras pick you up, they have facial recognition, they have gate recognition, they have all kinds of forms of recognition that are peculiar to you. Again, so I start to track you. I start to understand what you're doing. And then, because I have this information, what I try to think about what I can do with this information. I can sell you things. I can make your life more convenient. You know, and then I can build a business model around doing that. I can build an app. I can build a service. Uber you know, becomes a way to, to take the things, uh, that this data, and then use it in new and different ways, ways that you know, I can use to uh, make a very valuable company, but also ways that I can use then in the case of the Chinese Communist Party and in the case of you know, uh, contract tracing here in the United States, I can use you know, for the purposes of you know, slowing a pandemic. Okay, well, if I have that power over your data, then what else can I do with it? And this is where you get on the slippery slope of it becomes in, in, intoxicating either for a corporation or a government to use that data for all kinds of unintended things that you would, you would consider against your own interests. Okay, so um, if that's a world that we live in today, and it's a world that we're accelerating into with um, the explosion of 5G and connected cameras everywhere and other sensors that are tracking you, how do we protect ourselves in that world? Well, we have to basically say that data about you regarding you and your data should be protected. It should be prevented from being used in ways that are counter to your interests. That's not something that we have, um, have dealt with. We, we, we understand our constitution, we understand the physical world, but we don't understand the digital world. And so what you know, I believed was that not only was this, this digital system absolutely critical to life. It's the way that you get you know, a ride today. It's the way that you get food. It's the way that you get medicine. It's the way that you get medical help. It's the way that you have um, first responders to meet your needs. It be, it's, it's, it's important. can be taken away like that by North Korea with one weapon because it's not hardened. So that was an issue. And then the other issue is because I have all this data about you, I can undermine you, I can influence you, I can suppress you, I can raise you up, depending on what my motivations are, whether I am a corporation, an a, uh, institution, you know, non-governmental organization, or a, you know, a rogue state. I just have to jump in for one sec. How is it that TikTok is still you know, in this country on a kajillion cell phones with, because, with the power of the CCP behind it? Because people don't understand the power of, I mean, Washington, D.C. is not full of technologists. They're not full of people that understand technology and where, and, and, and where it's gone. And so protecting that 
data about you and you know, of you is equivalent to your individual liberty that's a, basically enshrined in the Constitution. And so to take this next leap, you have to take that data and you have to lock it down. You have to encrypt it. It has to be locked down. And the only person that can have the key is you. Now, how do you do that in the world of today? Nobody's going to give away their smartphone. What about the cameras? So thinking through that, how you protect that data, and then how do you preserve this ability to communicate and get access to services, you know, is what you know, Semper is about. It's about, you know, Semper as a word in the Spanish language means always. It's, it, it's about protecting liberty always. And, and I thought that we needed a technolo technological means of reinforcing kind of our constitutional freedoms. And that has to be around protecting your data. And so that's what we're focused on is protecting data and securing it and making sure it's uh, secure and available. And, and quite frankly, you know, I felt like my time um, working with nuclear weapons really gave me a vision of how that would be. And that's really because, you know, the United States has never had an um, unauthorized use of a weapon. We've had accidents, but there's never been a detonation. That's because we have something called nuclear surety. It, it deals with the, say, the, uh, the personnel, the material, and the procedures by which we handle those, you know, very dangerous weapons. Well. We take that approach to data and we say, you know, we want to make sure the personnel, the material, and the procedures by which we operate on your data is given the same uh, deference that, you know, you know, those powerful weapons are. And so if we can do that, if we can create this way of securing data and protecting your individual liberty by protecting your data that's of and about you, then we can create, you know, in technology, we can instantiate in technology the means of, of protecting your freedoms. For instance, um, today, you could have a system where you go into a 7-Eleven, you pick up a bag of chips and you walk out and you never, never uh, swipe your credit card. In, in today's instantiation of that, I just described that everything about you would be known in that situation. You could have another situation where that data that's being collected about you can be used to, to do a transaction, but that transaction looks very much like a credit card transaction today, and no other information passes out, is passed to um, the store, right? You're not your name, not your phone number, not your address, and nobody else has it either, right? As you walk around the city, that data is used for making your life more convenient. But ultimately, when once it's used, you know it, it, it's it's always kept secured and encrypted. But it's not given out, and I think that's a, we build a system today on open data and everybody's data being available to any company and any corporation, any government. And what I think that our vision is that, at least in those communities and those areas that want it, we can provide a, a different future. Well, and I think you're also something you're also developing is. Uh hardened um, cell towers, basically, right? Um, and a system that could, you know, basically stand in juxtaposition to Huawei's deployment, you know, of, of its technology across the, the world at mass scale. Is this, I mean, this is the beginnings of this, or where, 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 where are you at? Well, I mean, this? so if you look at the evolution of computing technology, there's been this there's been this tend to be centralized and decentralized, centralized and decentralized. 
with 5G, we're moving into this world of decentralized computing, right? So we had these big, what they call hyperscale clouds that, that today power the apps uh, that run behind the scenes that power your smartphones. As we move more to this world of cameras, we're moving to more of a de decentralized, disaggregated computing structure. In order to do that, how do you provide the, the security and, and resiliency of that capability? Well, that's what we looked at. And so um, one of the things that we found in looking at that and trying to think about this problem differently, if we have a, an electromagnetic pulse, say from a high altitude nuclear weapon or, or a solar flare, um, how do we create a system that will survive in it? Today, our system won't. Well, we went through the engineering. The cool thing that we found out about that is our devices already will survive. They, the, the engineering, the geometry, um, the circuitry, the way, um, the way it's structured is small enough that you can't get an EMP to propagate, and therefore that device continues to work. So you have a device in your pocket today that works. And North Korea, you know, lights off an EMP over the United States. Infrastructure goes down. You can't call anybody. There's no cell tower to connect to. There's no data center to run the back end of your smartphone. So we, you know, in, in conjunction with this, you know, decentralization and disaggregation of computing power, we created a cell tower and a data center that would allow you to be to that system to survive in that tower itself. And so. You know, our goal is to provide that infrastructure, not just to um, you know, the enterprises and the, and the banks and, and all the companies that need it, but also to our military. So you know, we want to provide these to any military that, um, that's an ally or partner of the United States to allow them to communicate on the battlefield. But at the same time, you know, if you think about it, say uh, American military forces can continue to communicate, but the American people can't. You can't buy milk. You can't go to the gas station. You can't pay for anything. You can't call for help. You can't get medical services because all of that's done through your device. You know, what good is it that our military can, can talk? I mean, the, the, the social fabric begins to unravel pretty fast. We saw that during the um, Hurricane Katrina, how quickly um, civil society began to erode. These devices have become essential to life. And so having that ability to have that connectivity and resiliency and, and in addition have protection over your data, that's what um, we're about. And you know, the, the cool thing about this thing is um, you can create something brand new that, um, that is not just a, um, a cool technology, it's also providing for uh, a different way of looking at um, how we preserve uh, our nation. Fascinating. Any final thoughts? You know, one of the things that I appreciate is what you've been doing in um, as a journalist. Uh, I think that it's very hard um, in this day and age to maintain uh, your independence to maintain your objectivity when it comes to this vast ocean of data that's meant to be polluted, it's meant to be dragging us down. So I just want to say thank you for, for that because um, I believe in the fourth estate. I believe in the importance of the fourth estate. I believe in this country. I believe in the Constitution. I believe that you know, we have to fight to preserve it and, uh, and I recognize you as one of the important people doing that. Well, so thank you. That's, that's very appreciated. Uh, General Robert Spaulding, it's such a pleasure to have you on again. Thank you.
Thank you all for joining General Robert Spaulding and myself for this episode of American Thought Leaders. His book again is War Without Rules, and I'm your host, Jan Jekielek. If you haven't subscribed already, you can now try a 14-day free trial and get access to all of our deep dive interviews, documentaries, and exclusive content on Epoch TV, from American Thought Leaders to The Larry Elder Show. Just go to ept.ms slash free trial Jan.